0: Yeah, if you feel able to, uh, feel free to to give back to the God who's been generous to you. But I've been thinking uh, this week about the power of repetition. Um, My son, uh, whom I love, hates uh, our little children's Bible that we have because there are too many stories in it. Uh, he's he likes one story. He wants to read good night moon over and over and over again And so what we found is we could, we just read one story out of the Bible and we read it over and over and over again And uh, the story we've been reading right now is the, the story of uh, in his words the mama and the dead and the baby uh, And we keep reading it so that he might slowly kind of understand the story But I find that I keep reflecting on this story Literally every day and so we keep reading these words that we've I don't know probably been hearing since we were children some of us and some of us maybe are getting slowly acquainted with the gospel and hearing them for the first time, but these are words we read every year because we want to know this story because this story is so precious to who we are and, and who we want to be and well, really what God has done in the world. So let me pray for us as they, uh, as they deal with that. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who gives us gifts and you don't give us one gift, you give us the same gift over and over and over again. You give us new gifts, your mercies are new every morning. Mm-hmm. And we thank you, God, for that. Um, We pray that we might come to understand the mystery of Christmas, uh, that we might never get tired of the mama and the dad and the baby, uh, that we might become people who have faith like children, uh, who just want to hear the story because we want to get it. Um, Yeah, God, we pray too, um, especially this day, uh, for the children in this church, um, for Piper and Nora, for AJ and Matthew. for Michael, for all of the babies um, that that are on their way, God, uh, and all the ones that that may come at some point in time. Uh, We thank you and praise you for the good work that you've done in Jesus. Uh, In your name, amen. (sighs) Mm -hmm. one One of the tragedies of modern living is the result of light pollution. And one of the great tragedies of that tragedy is that we don't think of it as very tragic. And that's, that's just the truth. I was reading an astronomer on the subject this week, and he said, you know, when you consider the sweep of human history, uh, when you consider the fact that basically for the entire time that we've been human beings, you've been able to look up at the sky during the day or the night, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and you know what time it is. You know where you are. You know what you're supposed to be doing. And when you think about the fact that now most human beings live in cities, and most of those cities have very few stars visible in the sky. We've lost something of what it means to be human. And I think he was overstating that last part, but I would say that that as Christians, uh, we would say that that we're part of creation and intimately connected to what God has made. And it's sad when we start cheating ourselves out of part of creation. But you might not think it's it's that big a deal. I will tell you that the city of Phoenix, um, not too long ago, decided to replace 90,000 street light bulbs the city council, 90,000 street light bulbs, which is not a cheap thing, in order that we might light the roads, but not the sky. Because we need light in the city, but we also need darkness at night, especially. And again, you might think, well, yeah, but I still see some stars in the sky. I probably saw, I don't know, some stars last night. I just wasn't paying attention when I was outside. But if I were, I would notice them. And the thing is, it was cloudy last night, so you didn't see any stars. Uh, But in Phoenix, we don't notice the difference between cloudy nights and non-cloudy nights, and that's kind of the point. That's The issue of light pollution the human eye on a clear evening should be able to see literally thousands upon thousands of stars if there's no moon the milky way the stars they should be so bright that you should have a shadow even on a night with no moon when was the last time you saw stars that good we yeah, we we have to get in a car now. I mean, you have, you have to drive away you have to be staring up at the sky and kind of seeking the light in the, the hopes that you might see something that good. And that is actually part of what we're going to be talking about today. So if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 1. And the, uh, the series we've been in is called Finding Courage. And today's sermon is... Uh, Finding the courage to seek. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born, in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened And all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men, and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is much to be admired, much to be learned from these wise men, as there is from all wise men and women. But before we talk about that, it might be good to talk about who these people were and who they weren't. And I have bad news for you if you love a particular Christmas carol. These were not three kings. There might have been more of them, and they were not kings. The Bible has a word, king. It uses it of Herod. It does not use it of these men. It calls them wise men. The word in Greek is magi. But a really good equivalent in our time would be... (coughs) a scientist. These were ancient scientists. And you might think that sounds very strange because these don't sound anything like any scientist I have ever heard of or anyone I've ever seen on PBS or the Discovery Channel. And I think that's a fair point. All good science, all good science begins with love, with a love of beauty and a love of truth. With a deep belief that things that are beautiful have truth within them that you can discover if only you would spend time looking at them. With a deep belief that the truth itself is beautiful and worth articulating in powerful and profound ways. Good science begins that way and every little kid you've ever watched, and if you've ever been a kid, you probably know this, suddenly gets this passion about some random thing like plants and how flowers grow and how fun and interesting it is or dinosaurs and how maybe you knew every Latin name of every dinosaur because they're just cool and there's just they're just cool and it's worth learning as much as you possibly can or animals or the human body and cells or the ocean or the desert or rocks and magma and tectonic plates and crystals, physics or chemistry. It just feels like magic. There's something really fun about it. And then you go to school and they just beat the love out of you. That is not what science is about, math. Science is about rationality and observing the universe in many different ways and being objective and hypothesis and experiments and revision of hypothesis, the method, over and over and over and over again. And at no point should you ever be in love with the thing you study. At no point should you ever find it beautiful because that calls into question your objectivity. And the few of us who make it to the other side, who still love science in the midst of it all, wonder why it is that we love this thing and that that nobody else seems to understand why. Astronomers in our time are modern scientists. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or... Carl Sagan, uh, Stephen Hawking, for that matter, Bill Nye, I guess, kind of, um, the NASA, right? These are people who really understand astronomy. Astronomy is a word we get from two Greek words, aster, star, namas, laws. These are people who study the laws, the mechanics, the motion of the stars, who chart it as carefully and clearly as they possibly can. And they would never want to be called astrologers also a word we get from two Greek words, aster lagos, star message, the message of the stars. Astrology is a strange, non-scientific, deeply magical idea that the stars have a message for us. And people who believe in astrology go looking for that message. They find the universe not a cold, dead place filled with burning balls of gas, but something alive and something that speaks, something that sings a song. And in our time, modern astrology is like a cartoon. You, you hear it in pickup lines at bars. I'm a Leo, what's your sign? Or people who bother reading newspaper columns that seem, again, a bit like a joke. If you're a Capricorn, you're going to have a great day. If you're a Pisces, I'm sorry. And you think there's a one in 12 chance. You've gotta be wrong for millions of people. But those, you're right, they just, they love the idea. And if you have particularly weird friends who like particularly weird things, like new-agey, crystally things, and they love going to the vortexes in Sedona, or they do really believe that the stars have a message, and they go to psychics and say, well, I was born under a particular alignment of planets, and that's why my life works this way, and that's why I am who I am, and I feel like they always move their hands like this when they talk about why my life is written in the stars. And the thing is, modern astrology and modern astronomy have very little to do with ancient astronomy and ancient astrology, because those two things were the same thing. And that is extremely confusing to people like you and me, because we do not live in a time where something like that would be called science. We don't think of astrologers as people who care about math or reality or logic, And you can't imagine this story happening in our time, because it would be like a chief engineer from NASA showing up on a flight from Thailand, going to the palace of the king, knocking on the door and saying, hey, was looking through the Hubble telescope yesterday, congratulations, you're having a boy and the king doesn't even know his wife is pregnant, you'd be like, whoa, that, that would quickly become the most highly paid astronomer in the world. Ever, You will begin to understand why these people are so well-funded, why they can afford things like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These strange, mysterious wise men who lay out in a field or the desert at night, staring up at the sky till the wee hours of the morning because they find it beautiful, because they desperately want to know the mysteries of the universe because they are not affected by the malaise of modern science. They believe there is a message in the sky and they have a scribe who takes down notes in clay tablets. And all of a sudden, one day, they notice something strange in the sky, some odd change in the rhythm. Now, only somebody who is a skilled observer of the night sky would ever see something like that. But you should know that in the ancient world, people believed that there was a music in the heavens, that the planets sing a song, literally, that there is a dance going on in the sky, and that if you pay attention, you might be able to learn the steps. And for a long time, we thought that was ludicrous, until recently, when some mathematicians noticed that there are odd patterns in the orbits of the stars, and if you start graphing them, they look like beautiful geometric patterns with a strange kind of symmetry which is weird in a universe that comes from the Big Bang and everything is random. It's odd that there would be such pattern and symmetry. Likewise, there's a certain kind of math in the relationships between the orbits of the stars, a math that's expressed really cleanly on a piano. There's a music, literally a music, in the stars. And so these men, who seem so strange to us, actually may have something that we don't have. And so when you look back in time and you hear something like, they followed a star and it sounds crazy, it's possible they know something we didn't. And so, these people, they see something in the sky, and they recognize somehow that a king has been born to the west. And they get on camels, and they go. Now that takes some courage, some courage to see something, and then to make a decision to believe it. Not merely to recognize in your math and your extremely good scientific calculations that something is different in the sky, but to, to follow it. To say, well, these things that I worship and adore, the stars, they worship and adore someone else. I want to find out who that is. And so they gather together camels and servants and all the supplies you need for a journey like that. They get really expensive things like gold, which is heavy and not something you want to bring on a really long journey through the desert. Also, it makes you a target for robbery. These people are extraordinarily courageous and as they set out on this journey, I wonder if they meet other astronomers who've seen the same thing in Khazar, I don't know, Babylon, Persia, the Indus River Valley, or China. All places we have star charts from. All places, interestingly enough, that notice something very odd around the time of the birth of Christ. Some planets aligning in the constellation Pisces. Weird. A supernova, which they called a brand new star, appearing in the sky to the west. Weird. Maybe those things, maybe other things, maybe comets and meteor showers, maybe something that we don't even understand in our time. But they get together and they start talking about this thing that they love, the stars, and how it's pointing them to the west. And then the star disappears, which again is hard for us if we loved the children's story. And this story actually tells us a slightly different one than maybe you learned. The star does not stay in the sky. It, it appears when they're in the east and then it seems to disappear and they need to ask for directions. And then it reappears in verse 9 and 10 and they're really, really excited about that. It's interesting. So suddenly they find themselves in Israel, near Jerusalem, and they have to ask for directions. These people who have followed the stars to this point suddenly need to ask for directions. They start wandering around and saying, What sort of place is this? What sort of people are you? We're Jews. We worship the God of Israel. Interesting. We've heard that there is a king of the Jews. Herod? No, not Herod. He's been born recently, in the last couple of months, couple of years. No, I think I would have heard about that. No, we're looking for the king of the Jews. I, I've seen it in the sky. You've seen it in the sky? I've seen it in the sky. Well, I'm pretty sure we would have heard about that. But, but what you're describing, it sounds like the Messiah, the Christ. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. We, we do believe in things like that. But I think somebody would have told me if the Christ had been born. And so these wise men, they find themselves in the court of Herod, talking to the king, and Herod gets nervous. That's what it says in verse 3. Herod is uncomfortable. Herod is a little shaken up. Herod trembles. And when Herod is uncomfortable, Israel is uncomfortable. When Herod is nervous, Judea is nervous. Because Herod is not a good man. Herod is a dangerous human being. He gets a little murdery when he gets nervous. He has a strong tendency to kill people. There is an old joke in Greek that says, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because the pigs just get eaten, but the sons, man, it's really bad for them. This is who Herod is. He's someone who has a strong tendency to kill anyone and everyone who is a threat to his power. Not only that, but he's not really a king. He's not really the king of the Jews, he's a fake king. Because of course the emperor is the actual king of the Jews, and the Roman governor of the area is basically the king of the Jews. But the emperor knows that it's easier to get people to accept oppression and slavery if you can create a fake government. And so Herod is a fake king. He's in charge of Israel as long as he does exactly what Rome wants, which means he's not in charge of Israel, Rome is. Herod knows this, the people know this. The people know that he's not a descendant of David, that he has no relationship to the kings of Israel, that he doesn't follow the God of Israel. Herod is, in every possible way, a puppet, an imposter. The people hate him for it, and he hates the people because they hate him. Herod is a dangerous, dangerous man. And so he calls in all of his wise men to ask questions. Where is the King of the Jews to be born? Where is the Messiah, the Christ, to be born? And they look at one another, and these wise men don't look at the stars because they have something more powerful. They have the actual words of God. And so they know exactly where and when, not a vague idea, but exactly where the Messiah is to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they say. Bethlehem, don't be sad. You're not the smallest town around. You're, you're the one from whom a leader will come, the shepherd of my people Israel. They quote Micah, cleanly and from memory. And so Herod knows where the Messiah will be born. And we could talk a lot about Herod as a bad shepherd and Jesus as a good one. That Jesus will call himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That he'll call Herod a wolf and a fox who has a strong tendency to eat his own people. But we're talking about the wise men and the courage they have to seek. Now I want you to pay attention to something. The wise men had the stars and they got really, really close. But they could not actually find the God that we know in Jesus Christ. They could not actually find the King of the Jews. Because the stars will get you close. The things that you love will get you close. Beauty and truth and rationality, reason, science, even astrology maybe, will get you close. But it can never actually get you to the God of the universe. You need scripture for that. And so once they have scripture, they know where to go. And Herod gives them directions. Go to Bethlehem. It's over here. And when you get there, ask about the kid. And I want to know more about this star that you've seen. When did it appear in the sky? He interrogates them secretly. He doesn't want people to know about this, and he doesn't want them to realize why he, wants to, why he wants to know where the king of the Jews is. And they tell him it was at such and such a time, and so now Herod has an idea of how old the Messiah might be, which is important because later in the gospel, he will try and kill every baby about that age in that area of town. But these wise men, they know where to go now. They know where Bethlehem is. It's only five miles away. All this distance, and they were so close. Five miles away, they walked to Bethlehem. And as they walk, the sun sets. And as the sun sets, they suddenly see the star. The star that they'd seen when they were in the east. And if you check your footnotes, by the way, your Bible might have said something like mine. Mine has a tendency to say they were really excited because the star stops. They're excited because they see the star again. They suddenly, it it reappears, and they are filled with great joy. They are overwhelmed with joy, it says in verse 10, or literally in Greek, the four words that they use are hard to bring into English. It would sound like this. Uh, They rejoiced with great joy a whole lot, like a whole lot. It's just piling up. They were so overwhelmingly excited to see the star again, so overwhelmingly excited to see this thing that had changed their lives, that had drawn them to the West, that was pointing the way to the one that the stars worship. These men worship the stars and the stars worship this king and they want to meet him. And so they find themselves in Bethlehem of Judea and the star or whatever it is stops over a house like a big neon sign pointing straight down. And these wise men knock on the door and see an ordinary man, an ordinary woman who doesn't look like the queen mother, an ordinary building that doesn't look like a palace and a baby. And because these are wise men, they are not confused by what they see. They immediately, verse 11, they kneel down and they pay him homage. A better translation of that might be, they fell on their faces and they worshipped him. That's what those words mean. They fell on their faces and they worshipped him. These pagan scientists who believe that the stars are talking to them somehow found the king of the Jews. Meanwhile, the leaders of the Jewish people weren't even bothered to walk five miles to find out if maybe it was true. Dale Bruner, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he says it like this. The Magi were outsiders, both in race, Gentiles, and in profession, astrology. Yet they were invited to the party. Whatever one thinks of the Magi as sincere, and so literally following their lights, or as idolatrous and so captive to superstition, one thing is clear. God, in His great kindness, leads them to His Son. I am struck by the amazing nature of these wise, wise people, who see something in the sky and don't ignore it. They follow it. I wonder how many people, both in astrology and in modern science, see clues around them all the time and choose not to follow. Now, they find themselves not merely following a star, but getting possessions together for a journey because they believe what they've seen. They know that there is a king. They bring gifts worthy of the king. They travel a long distance. They bring expensive items. They get to town, and when everyone in town says, yeah, I think you've made a mistake, they say, no, we, we've done really good math. We know exactly where we are. This is, this is where the star appeared. And they say, I don't, I don't think you're right. And still these men are confident and they go to Bethlehem because some Bible they've never read before tells them to go to Bethlehem. Some scriptures of some God they do not believe in has directed them to this tiny little town and they want to see who the stars worship. Because they love the stars. Because they are seeking after truth and beauty and they find themselves in this little house looking at a poor little baby and they are not confused. They know that that's the king. They know that that's the one the stars bow down to. Now that is a mysterious and remarkable thing, but it takes courage to seek after truth like that. To not get distracted along the way. And you should notice that the people in the story who should believe in the God of the universe are the people who don't find themselves in that town. It's the theologically sketchy, it's the weirdos and idiots, it's the folks who believe in psychics, and the folks who love science and math and reason. It's those people who find themselves at the feet of Jesus. And so you and I need to learn a very powerful lesson from this. We need to remain seekers, constantly pursuing this God that we love, constantly pursuing the God that we have met in Jesus Christ, that we think we know everything about, when in fact there is so much more to learn and the known. Because these wise men teach us something powerful and profound, the church is a place for seekers. The church is a place for anyone and everyone who is looking for truth, looking for beauty, because we know, we absolutely know, that you will find that in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That anyone who sincerely seeks those things will find it in Jesus Christ. And what they will find when they get there is that they weren't the ones seeking, that We aren't the ones looking for God nearly so much as God has been looking for us. God has been seeking these wise men long, long before they even knew him, when they were just looking at his dance and his music in the stars, knowing that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord is something powerful and profound. And these men, at the very end of the story, are warned in a dream. And they're smart enough to know that dreams mean something which is confusing to you and me. But just as mysteriously as they learned about the king, they learn that another king wants to kill him. And so they go home by another road, it says. I wonder, I wonder if these people would suddenly find themselves more and more curious about the God of Israel, more and more curious about the God of this king of the Jews, this God who is testified to in the heavens and who they met somehow in a tiny little baby, a real human being, And a real God, God in the flesh, testified to by those who seek, those who have the courage anyway, to go looking for truth and beauty. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we know that you are a beautiful God. That You are the God of the heavens, the stars, and that they are the works of your fingers. We know, Lord, that they testify to you and we do not understand how they do it. But we thank you that we are not like our friends and neighbors who sometimes find themselves searching through the Big Bang for meaning, staring up at the sky in the hopes that their constellation might somehow tell them who they're supposed to be. We thank You, God, that we have real stories, the real words of the God of the universe, and we pray, Lord, that we might lead those who seek closer to truth, and that we might not become so arrogant, that we might not become so arrogant to think that we have found You, that we don't need to go looking wherever You may appear. We thank You, God, for beauty and truth. And we pray that we might seek after them yet again. In the name of Jesus.